0: Waiting. This is Club health thanks for coming kids. Sit. Come on. Hello this is notes from the back row. A cinema podcast of commentary, questions, answers, dreams, fears, joy rise, hell runs and so much more. So strap in. For a veritable cinematic Coney Island of the Vine. Greetings, my name is Jenna Ipkar and I will be your projectionist for this episode of Notes from the Back Row. This is episode two of our brand new podcast, which you can find on our website, backrow.com, that's back-row.com, and also on iTunes. Find us there, please. Subscribe, rate us, if you will, or uh, maybe you want to wait until we have a little more than two episodes in to rate us. In that case, I forgive you. Anyhow, welcome back. This episode, unlike episode one, is going to be told in segments, a little bit like a news magazine. So think uh, 60 minutes, but with less hard-hitting journalism and more opinions about murder movies. Episode 1, if you missed it, was a group discussion on Jeff Goldblum and how much all four of us want to shed our skin and morph into him someday. Oh right, and his movies. But here we are in episode 2, so let's just dive right in. First up... Carlo brings you a recommendation for a movie that has less than 1,000 views on here Letterboxd. Hi,
1: Carlo and welcome to my part of the show, I guess. Um, so I would like to highlight a couple of movies from a list I've been keeping on Letterboxd. It is a list called Good Movies with Under 1K Views. So basically, these are all movies that less than 1,000 people have logged as watched on Letterboxd.com. Um, Letterboxd, in case you don't know, is like a social network for movies but without any of the usual social media annoyances, such as ads and uh, garbled feeds, but still with the usual annoyance of people soliciting unwanted opinions. Um, However, I digress. Anyway, I figured 1K would be a good cutoff point, seeing how I've been updating this list for a year or two as of this point, and it clocks in about 150 movies right now, which is neither too much nor too little, I feel. So moving on, the first movie I would like to talk about is one that is close to hitting the 1K mark, which means it will be cut from the list because them's the breaks. A movie by an acclaimed talent director by the name of Lucio Filci. Now that name might ring a bell if you are a fan of horror movies because he has got some downright classics under his belt such as The Beyond, House by the Cemetery, New York Ripper, City of the Walking Dead and Zombie aka Zombie 2 aka Zombie Creeping Flesh aka a bunch of other names I'm sure depending on where it was published. Uh, But the movie I wanted to highlight is one that isn't so much horror as this horror adjacent And that movie is 1983's Conquest.
2: From a place beyond time,
1: comes a terrifying challenge beyond imagination. Conquest. Two men join forces. In a struggle for power. In a realm of fear. So Conquest is kind of an oddity among Fulci's body of work in that it is more of a fantasy action adventure type of deal, kind of in the wheelhouse of a Conan the Barbarian what have you. I first saw Conquest a couple of years ago when I was on a bit of an Italian genre kick. Uh, Even when you've seen a bunch of weirdo Italian movies from the 80s, or even Fulci movies, this shit's kind of on another level, and by kind of I mean way out there, so it really stuck with me ever since. The story as it goes, and I'm paraphrasing from the summary that's on Letterboxd here, is. A young man, armed with a magical bow and arrows, embarks on a mystical journey through a mystical land to rid it of all evil and joins forces with an outlaw to take down an evil witch bent on claiming the magic bow for evil. I guess that kind of rings a bell, because honestly as far as story goes, it's only secondary to the vibe, like the whole experience of watching Conquest. Uh, so back in 2016, I went through my letterbox entries and I described it as Conquest adheres to an otherworldly set of rules compared to anything else I've ever seen The closest I can think of is some crazy non-narrative Turk exploitation trash like Cetin Turkish Star Wars Rating this movie is like making a real-life decision based on a fever dream It is the kind of thing you would tune into halfway at 3 a.m. and think to yourself it seems cool, but I think I need to go rent it and watch it from the start because none of this is making sense. But doing that will only make you even more confused. Um, so another take on it. I plucked a review from a Letterboxd user called Patrick Pryor, a good friend of mine who describes it as a masterpiece of rabbit bear, screaming into the mist, naked witches riding with boa constrictors. Giants covered in mirrored plating, gore-drenched swordplay, and oozing boils. This movie really feels like it was filmed in some distant alien fantasy land, far beyond our own time and space. No one behaves like an actual human and impenetrable fog chokes a desolate hellscape of bogs and caves and rolling plains. Dreamy in the fragmented, slow-zoom, blood-freakiness of Prime Fulci this kind of DMT d nightmare I don't want to wake up from. So yeah, as you can tell, Conquest is it's truly a singular experience, akin to a vaporwave ASMR tape that may or may not be best experienced with the use of certain substances. One thing that really adds to the experience though is the soundtrack, which is a wonderful composition by frequent collaborator Claudio Simonetti of Goblin, uh, it is omnipresent and demanding in a way that you can basically watch Conquest as a 90-minute uh, music video directed by Lucio Filci. So if you want to watch Conquest, and I recommend that you do, there is a DVD out from Blue Underground, uh, which is Bill Lustig's company. I checked and I saw that there are copies on Amazon from only $7. So if you're looking for something unlike anything else you've ever seen, I would highly recommend checking it out. Um, even though it kind of feels like the movie the ind- need to watch on a moldy, scratched-up VHS, uh, definitely do check it out however which way you can. Uh, Okay, that'll be all for me. You can find me on Letterboxd as Carlo V, aka Carlo Raisin. Uh, So that's me signing off, and keep watching the skis!
0: Speaking of Fulci... We're going to get into some giallo talk as we move to Veronica's segment, where she won't try to convince you to watch these, but...
3: Welcome to the Back Row Cinema Podcast, and our new segment, well, all of it's new, but our new segment, I won't try to convince you, but where we focus on less than stellar movies that some of us truly love. This week, we're starting with two Giallo-inspired hot mess masterpieces in honor of the Suspiria remake trailer, which was just put out in the past couple of weeks. Some of us have been waiting, it seems like years now, for the Suspiria remake, quite excitedly. So in honor of that... We're going to go over some giallo-inspired movies that may not really be up to everyone's standards, but are still absolutely amazing in their own unique way. We'll start with a selection from the father of the bizarro giallo world, Dario Argento. Again, it's a superior remake coming out. It's kind of on my mind. In 1987, Argento released a movie called Opera. ...to enjoy an evening of terror.
2: Terror at the opera. The final note is a real killer.
3: One of his most gruesome and most commercially successful movies. Opera revolves around a young girl, Mara, who is a part of a production in a theater house, in an opera house as the name would imply, who finds herself being stalked by someone who has no intention of physically harming her, but wants to harm the people around her. In order to bring this bizarre plan uh, into reality, her assailant ties her up, tapes needles under her eyes so she can't look away or close her eyes, and then slaughters whoever she happens to be in the room with. At some point, uh, it's a young man she's interested in. Other times, it's friends. It's a whole big, bloody mess of revenge. Now, the good news for pretty much any of the giallos, starting from the girl who knew too little up to the Superior remake, I'm sure, is that the plots are convoluted and a little uh, hard to follow, but not because they're so complicated or intense, just because sometimes they're completely nonsensical. They are just vehicles for this outrageous gore. This is extra true in opera. It is just a story about someone coming after someone else for revenge. There are ridiculous layers of how this revenge is... It takes place. There isn't a whole lot of uh, real intense storytelling, real intense plot twists or, or developments that that really suck you in, pull you in. What it's all about are the death sequences and these violent moments that are in the tradition of Italian cinema. Absolutely beautiful and entertaining, with the whole sort of Ludovico esque treatment with the eyes to how each person gets killed. They really are spectacular to watch. This movie is fairly well-received, especially compared to other movies of its ilk, Uh, but it still is an Italian horror movie, which lends itself to having a lot of nonsensical moments. Really, these movies are style over substance, which brings us to the second movie on the docket today, one of my personal favorites that I will not defend my love of, I Know Who Killed Me.
1: You're all by yourself in there. No twin sister. Once he finds out you're still alive, he's gonna come after you.
3: I feel like he's watching us right now.
1: He's not done with Aubrey Fleming, not by a long shot.
3: Stop playing games. We have to know the truth.
1: She looks just like her, but it ain't Aubrey.
3: She's living inside a world she made up. You let both of us die just to keep your secret?
1: You should be dead by now. I know who killed me.
3: Now, I'm not going to try to convince you that I know who killed me is a good movie, a competent movie, or even a well-made movie. I'm just here to convince you that it is a very, very fun movie to watch. Released in 2007, this thriller with a kind of supernatural or psycho-natural twist stars Lindsay Lohan as a stripper playing dual roles. Because I am genuinely trying to convince people to see this movie, I'll hold off on the more twisty parts of the plot. That it doesn't really do anything to spoil it, if you know. Because the explanation of how some things are happening in the movie is already so strange that it really isn't going to ruin anything if you know what's happening. It Actually, it might make things a little more coherent. But for the sake of what we're doing here, the movie has two sort of plot lines running next to each other. One is of Lohan's character as a stripper and one is Lohan's character as a valid Victorian, normal high school student living in her parents' house, having a milk toast boyfriend, being perfectly happy. What starts to happen is that One of these characters is removed and the other one takes her place and it's a little bit unbeknownst to everyone that there are doubles. The weird things are happening, pieces of Lohan's character are falling off and being like as if they're being removed. I don't want to get any further into it because it starts to get very strange and in some ways just absolutely ridiculous. But why I bring this movie up and why I include it in this Giallo inspired rundown, not rundown, we're only doing two movies, but why it's included is that it is very, very much in the style of the old Italian, you know, technicolor, bright, eye popping, art designed within an inch of its life movies. There are weapons uh, and surgical tools in this movie that look like they're made out of blue ice everything there's a color palette of red and blue it's how you tell the two separate characters apart it is so over the top it is so insane it is not remotely subtle or just hints of things here and there it is just hammering you over the head but it's great it it's terrible it's terrible But it's so much fun, and it's very, very gory and very graphic. And I think that actually might have been its undoing in a lot of ways for finding a more mainstream audience, is that people can get behind something that's ridiculous and wild, but when you get into these these torture porn-ish moments, I don't want to fully say torture porn because it's not. When you get into these moments that do have uh, very intense torture sequences and do have very graphic moments, close-ups of of hands being burnt off with uh, liquid nitrogen and then being severed and you know these really grotesque things, you do lose some of your audience that might be like, sure, I'll go see that stupid Lindsay Lohan movie. Let's go. You kind of alienate them. You're going to appeal to... Me? (laughs) Sorry. I couldn't think of who you might appeal to. You're going to appeal to a small group of people who love style and color and eye-popping weirdness and who are on board for something that's just not even close to reality, but then can also stomach these brutal torture sequences. I think uh the director Chris Siverson was truly trying to make a giallo movie in the style of the ones from the sixties, the seventies. I think the problem is that he updated it so far that even the violence was updated, so it while I think it doesn't particularly work, it's entertaining, but it is still very, very graphic, uh very intense. And then also absolutely absurd. Which, to be fair, is certainly giallo. (laughs) Absurd and graphic. It's just that in 2007, as opposed to 1967, there is a huge difference between what the graphicness looks like. And I could see how that might be a little bit uh, of a barrier for some people. For anyone who's interested, this film currently has a 7% on Rotten Tomatoes. Again... The name of this segment is I'm Not Gonna Try to Convince You But, so all I want to do is let you know that these movies are out here, they're fun, they are a good time, but I'm not going to try to tell you that they're good. I'm not going to try to tell you that they're some overlooked masterpiece. I'm just going to tell you that they do exist and you should probably give them a look.
0: Giallo films are full of creepy-ass jerks, which is a pretty good segue into my segment on Oliver Reed movies. I'm talking about Oliver Reed's Hammer films, and I'm rating them on a very special scale. Check it out. You know how some actors are just so good at playing creepy-ass jerks that it makes you want to punch them in the face? (laughs) Think of like uh, Jack Gleason, who plays Joffrey on Game of Thrones. That's like the most universally accepted modern example of this scenario. I actually read an interview with Gleason where he claims that he uh, is not bullied in the streets, but I'm pretty positive that that doesn't include the fact that I'm sure everybody knee jerk tenses up when he walks past them. There's a handful of actors like this uh, who are known for playing bad guys and typically do get hell for it on the streets. But I think uh, Oliver Reed, of all people, takes the cake. Oliver Reed, the infamous and celebrated British actor slash hellraiser who died as he lived uh, in a pub. He was actually in the middle of shooting Ridley Scott's Gladiator when he just keeled over and died, uh, I think after several dozen hours of drinking. He became famous through a mixture of uh, genuine, genuine talent and uh, his legendary (laughs) drinking ability... You might know him better through a handful of the amazing films he did with Ken Russell, such as Women in Love or The Devils, or even the Carol Reed Oliver, where he plays the vicious Bill Sykes. In general, you'll find Reed playing various degrees of vicious old chaps, and I think that, plus alcohol, plus his inability to de-escalate any situation, typically got him in trouble. Reed started his career in the early 60s doing Hammer Films, which was a notorious British production company known for its classic horror pictures, such as Werewolves and Mummies, Frankenstein. Think like Roger Corman, but with more Christopher Lee. What happened was sometime between 65 and and 1966, from what I can tell, He was sitting in a nightclub and some young guys started to taunt him, saying things like, oh, look, here comes Dracula, but, you know, probably more obnoxious and with a British accent uh, and and referencing these hammer pictures. And Reed replied he bite the guy's jugular out and then went back to doing what he was doing. About an hour later, the guy came back even drunker, challenged him again. Reed told him to piss off and then the guy smashed a glass right in Reed's face. And then got, he jumped Reed with his entire gang of uh, droogs. This left Reed bleeding profusely, and he jumped into a cab where the cabby yelled at him for bleeding all over the cab. And then once he got to the hospital, a nurse actually fainted at the sight of his face because he was just so bloody. So I'm of two minds here. On one hand, no, you should never punch an actor for doing their job. Okay, it's fiction, it's, it's acting, people, come on, violence is not the answer. On the other hand, it's no secret that young Oliver Reed played some pretty damn punchable roles. His first big role in a Hammer film, previously he had some bit parts, was The Curse of the Werewolf, which came out in 1961. <laughs>
3: came from a land of brutality and evil it came from terror and fear the curse of the werewolf that was laid on a baby who grew into a man possessed by a monster
0: it's pretty straightforward werewolf flick uh though it does have a bit of a strange twist as far as the origin story of how werewolves come to be goes Basically like a a mute uh, younger woman gets viciously raped by this vagabond that she previously was like the only person to show him any kindness, but uh, okay, whatever. Uh, And it results in an unwanted pregnancy. She gets taken in by a kindly uh, elder gentleman and his housekeeper. But the housekeeper is really worried for the, the sake of this child. She claims that uh, anyone who uh, gives birth on Christmas Day to an unwanted child will end up with a cursed child, essentially. Sounds nutty, but uh, it's true. Of, course. <laughs> And uh, basically, so the baby that gets born on Christmas is ends up being a baby werewolf. And every full moon, you know, tries to viciously uh, kill people and animals. And then it grows up to be Oliver Reed. So it's uh, even scarier. So where does this land on the punchability rating of Oliver Reed movies? Funny enough, Oliver Reed is super friendly and sympathetic in this movie. He's just like a poor dude looking for love because that's the only thing that stops him from turning into a vicious and very hairy killer. I would honestly give this like a zero on the punchability scale. I mean, he's a werewolf with like a Beatles haircut who wears ruffle shirts. I mean, come on, some light mocking surely, but you're not going to punch that guy next up is uh these are the damned which is from 1962 directed by joseph Losey. actually
3: animals dressed as human beings smash 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 a game for the wild ones played with the passion of the damned
1: don't ever do that again johnny
2: i'll do what i like king
1: you think I'll let a man put his dirty
0: hands on you? Uh, it's a film about a gang of teddy boys, you know, in a seaside British uh, town who get mixed up with an American tourist and then they all just stumble upon a secret government facility that houses uh, irradiated children who are meant to take over the world when the inevitable nuclear winter comes. You know how that is, right? We all have that space in our basement full of children that we've kidnapped, right? No, just me, all right. Uh, Oliver Reed plays King, who's the leader of this gang of ruffians who spends about most of his time on screen trying to like fight literally everybody about literally anything. Mostly he's trying to beat up the American for flirting with his sister or beating up a woman whose house that he invaded. I, I don't know, that's it, that's all he does. Eventually even his sister calls him out on his shit and she calls him like a jealous virgin, which is a little harsh to do in front of a bunch of people, but it eh, seems true. Reed plays such a shithead in this that supposedly this performance inspired Anthony Burgess to later write a clockwork orange, which I cannot 100% verify, but that would not surprise me quite frankly. He's a dickhead to literally everybody, uh, including those poor prisoner children. After he hears about their plight, he's just like, why should I care? I'm out of here. And he speeds off in a motor car. Between his nasty misogyny and about his sister and his hair-triggered temper, the punchability rating in this movie is definitely like an 8.5. And the .5, I may point out, is for the hilarious and awful theme song that he sings and whistles every time that he's about to beat somebody up. And the lyrics are just like...
1: Smash, smash, smash Black letter, black letter, Crash, crash, crash Black letter, black letter, Kill, kill, kill I got that feeling
0: Black letter, Lastly, there's Paranoiac, which is from 1963
1: And today we must also remember
0: Anthony Ashby Who blinded by grief at the death of his parents Took his own
2: life What he did was sinful in the eyes of God But God is merciful He will have taken this little boy into his kingdom There
1: to join the mother and father what he loved and missed so much. What did you see?
3: Tony?
0: It's about a wealthy family that's left in tatters after the parents of the three children die in a plane crash, and the eldest son commits suicide shortly after. Then one day, the same son, Anthony, appears back at the mansion alive and well, which throws the remaining siblings for a loop yet again, as the daughter, Eleanor, embraces this man as her brother, but younger brother, Simon, accuses him of being an imposter. Of course, all is not as it seems. Oliver Reed plays Simon, and let me level with you. His punchability in this movie is similarly off the charts. He is in classic Oliver Reed form here as the drunk psychotic brother with yet again a hair trigger temper. There's this one scene where he asks the butler for more whiskey and the guy says they're out. So Oliver Reed proceeds to scream in this dude's face at full force and then he breaks every glass in the room and it is jarringly uncomfortable to watch like really convincing acting and also like oh my god somebody punched that dude i will say by the end of this film when you realize just how crazy poor simon is you kind of feel a little less punchy about him i mean there's like a scene where the dude is straight up playing the organ in an abandoned church next to a dead and mummified corpse in a choir boy gown and it's like all right the guy's got issues but it's still definitely a nine on the punchability scale here So long story short, I don't know, man, I wouldn't say he had it coming because again, I'm not going to condone violently smashing a glass in any actor's face for having played a role very well. That's not nice. That's a back row. No, no. But I can also see why his face riled up a bunch of drunk folks in a pub. You know what I mean? Never mind all of the shitty and misogynistically terrible and questionable and borderline too flat out illegal things that Oliver Reed did later in life. Uh, but uh, look, at the end of the day, I, f- I feel your pain, people. People with anger issues, I, I feel you. And we proved today in the court of one person's public opinion that sometimes roles are very punchable. Whether or not you should take action about this that's i'll leave that to your own decision spoiler i don't think you should do it but that's just you know to keep things uh legally sound here all right talk to you later bye
1: black leather black leather smash smash
3: smash black leather black leather crash 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 black leather black leather
2: kill 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 i got that feeling black leather ride into the battle there chaps
0: To end the show, I'm going to throw it to Dan Gorman, who's bringing us a segment he calls The Watch List.
2: Hello, Dan here, and this is my segment of the show called The Watch List. This will feature a quick capsule review of something that I have checked off my watch list and a quick highlight of something that I have put on my watch list that I'm excited about. So right before I recorded this um, episode, I watched a movie from 1989 called Nightwish. It began as an experiment that went terribly wrong.
3: I believe we have very good chance. I like get authentic contact with psychic infamy. Don't open that! Don't, don't open that!
1: Do not throw away my life's work. Do not throw away my life.
2: night Wish. Directed by Bruce R. Cook. Tagline, in your dreams, no one can hear you scream. Synopsis, a professor and four graduate students journey to a crumbling mansion to investigate paranormal activity and must battle ghost aliens and satanic entities. Brian Thompson is in this. You'll probably recognize him from some 80s movies. Alicia Das, Jack Starrett, Elizabeth Caton, uh, Clayton Roner, A lot of people that you probably recognize from movies that you don't know their names of. So that's totally fine. This one is one of those movies that had a VHS cover that I remember super specifically. It's a woman. uh, Her face is coming out of some uh, bluish-greenish water. She's got little diode things on her head, and she's screaming. There's a moon above her. Um, I remembered specifically that it was a Vidmark movie. Um, I believe they may even have released an R-rated and an unrated version. Not 100% sure, but... This movie is kind of like a low budget flatliners. Um, it's about these students. They're, like I said, um, they're doing this investigation into something. It involves going to sleep and trying to control your dreams and trying to die in your dreams or something so they can capture a thing or whatever. This is a big theme in this movie. Me saying a thing or whatever happens because it is so convoluted. Uh, lots of kind of attempts at dream logic. Um, I'm not going to spoil anything. <laughs> Maybe even by saying I'm not going to spoil anything, that becomes a spoiler. But there does actually become a reason for the movie to be very convoluted. But for a long period of time, I was kind of going, this movie's kind of sweet. Um, lots of green lighting, lots of weird angles, lots of really bad acting, and some pretty good effects. B did stuff here, so you know it's going to be goopy and interesting in moments. Um, I actually had a lot of fun with this. I'm surprised that this hasn't been talked about more. I'm surprised that it hasn't kind of had a little bit of a resurgence. I feel like this might be one of those ones that could get a resurgence. I know that um, Past Midnight got you know some resurgence with a Scream Factory release. It's a um, anthology movie. It kind of had a similar thing where I wasn't you know loving the movie on the whole, but just the aesthetic and the feeling of the movie kind of carried me through what I didn't like about it, although I would say I maybe even had more fun here with Nightwish. Um, I had the kind of viewing experience where I was mostly paying attention through the whole movie but I had a little bit of a distraction, so I'm actually looking forward to circling back and maybe watching this with a friend um, and kind of just having a good time with it. I enjoyed it. Nightwish from 1989 um, is my my latest check off of the watch list. Now, one of my latest additions to the watch list is a horror comedy called Hysterical. Sit still. We have temporarily taken over your motion picture screens to bring you the following message. You're
1: doomed! The most horrifying evil powers in the universe... You talking to me? ...have gathered together to destroy civilization. Huh? as we don't want to know it. There are only three men in the entire world who could do the impossible. The Hudson Brothers. There is no hope. Just forget it. You're still doomed! Nothing can save you. And no one can save them. except a small, pathetic band of hopeless psychotics. Pay attention!
2: Um, So recently, I circled back to a movie called Pandemonium, which is a uh, horror spoof from the 80s and kind of came around the same time as Student Bodies, which was another horror spoof. There was a bunch of attempts to do spoofing of the horror genre right when it was kind of hitting its peak, which is interesting. Now, that got me in the mood for this kind of a movie, uh, I made a letterbox list. I'll put it in the description below of some of the most known and maybe unknown horror spoofs. And the the kind of last one on the list that I see, um, outside of really old ones like Comedy of Terrors or Carry On Screaming, um, is Hysterical from 1983, directed by Chris Beard. Warning: This movie contains scenes of violent comedy, explicit humor, and excessive laughter. Also, the Hudson Brothers, who I guess fancied themselves a bit of a a Three Stooge-esque troop. Um, So this is, you know, this is one of those horror spoofs where anything goes. It's not necessarily, from what I can tell from the trailer, a spoof of specific movies. Seems more like a haunted house kind of throwback, trying to do airplane-style gags, Uh, most people seem to think that this movie is terrible. It does have a 3 out of 5 average on Letterboxd, which is higher than I expect, but there's a lot of 1-star, 1.5-star reviews from people that I seem to know on Letterboxd. So by all accounts, this might be terrible, but I feel like I have to watch it and cross it off my watch list because it's one of the last ones I haven't seen from that genre. So that is the watch list. You can follow me on Twitter at yckm d underscore and otherwise i'll see you in the back row later
0: that's notes from the back row check out the site at back row.com follow us on twitter and facebook at back row cine blog that's back row c-i-n-e blog Send us an email at backrowcineblog at gmail.com or just tune in every other week for the latest episode of Notes from the Back Row. Thanks, everyone. Smell you later.
2: Back Row Episode 2 is brought to you by backdashrow.com and featured contributions from co-founders Veronica Del Ginko and Jenna Ipkar, as well as best boy Carlo Van Stifout and Dan Gorman.